I Read Comics, show number 79. Did everybody get what they wanted for Christmas? Or for holidays or whatever? I got the one thing that was really, really cool that I wanted, which is a book called Strange and Stranger, The World of Steve Ditko, which is published by Fantagraphics. And this just came out and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have to save up money to buy it because it's like 40 bucks. But I got it as a gift. I'm so happy. It's a really, really cool book. And I want to talk about it in more depth after I've had a chance to read it again. I've read it through twice and I feel like I need to read it at least one more time to really process everything that's in it. But in looking around on the internet and even reading some of the notes in the book, it appears that even a book about Steve Ditko causes controversy, as if Ditko himself was not controversial enough between what he contributed, how he left Marvel, his devotion to Ayn Randianism, his reluctance to speak with anybody ever about anything. He's just a guy who creates controversy wherever he goes, and this book that is about him has already created controversy. It's by a guy named Blake Bell. And as far as I understand, it's not an authorized book about him. That is, he didn't cooperate with Blake Bell or with Fantagraphics on this. And in fact, seemed pretty annoyed at them for wanting to publish some facts about him in terms of a biography where he grew up and talking to people that he went to school with, that sort of stuff. He's had, Ditko's had a very, uh, (laughs) contentious, I think is the word, relationship with the fan audience and apparently has never really gotten along with fans because in his view, he doesn't appreciate what he's been trying to do and he just can't put up with regular fanboys who just want to say, wow, I really liked what you did with Spider-Man, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Anyway, it's a great book. If you're into Ditko at all, I think it's worth it alone just for the art reproductions, which are beautiful, really, really beautiful. A lot of color stuff. The black and white stuff looks great too. And there's a lot of attention paid to detail. So you get a really good feeling for how his art changed over time, where it started, where it ended up. Um, And you get a really interesting glimpse of a lot of the stuff he did later on in his career up until he kind of stopped publishing stuff about 10 years ago, all his objectivism um, drawn directly from things like uh, the Fountainhead. And to see how certain things stayed the same over time is also very, very interesting. What changed and what stayed the same. Also to read yet another version of what happened with Marvel and how things went down with Stanley and the other folks who were there. I wish there had been more art, I guess. I, I mean, I would pretty much buy collections of just Steve Ditko art, and I'm not sure that there are any out there. I've been looking around, and I haven't really found much online. I have gotten a couple things off the torrents that look like collections of early black and white stuff, but not a lot besides that. So hopefully someday someone will collect, you know, kind of the ultimate Steve Ditko, although I'm sure he still owns the copyrights to most of the recent stuff that he's done that's specifically about objectivism. It would be great to see that really nicely reproduced all in one space, just so that people could read it. Because as weird as it is, the objectivist stuff, because I completely don't agree with that philosophy, 
I think it leads to libertarianism, which I also really don't agree with. Those are only philosophies that you can afford to believe in if you're a member of the privileged class, essentially being white and middle class and male, pretty much. Um, and I can see how they're really appealing, but they don't work at a societal level. But it, it's really interesting to see how he tries to translate that into comic book form. And one of the cool things about looking at his work over time is seeing how the words became more important to him than the art at a certain point where you look at a page and the characters are talking to each other and literally the words are crowding the images off the page. It's just words and words and words and words. And if you've tried to read any of Ayn Rand's books, you know that that's pretty much what they are, is big piles of words, people talking at each other for literally tens and tens of pages, one single character just talking and talking and talking. So all that stuff is very interesting and it's a, a very cool book. And I'm going to do a little more research online before I dive into it in depth, but I just wanted to say it's cool. I was going to try to do a Christmas edition, but I got sick. So belatedly, here's an idea for a gift. Maybe you still need to buy a gift for someone, whether it's a Christmas gift or a New Year's gift, perhaps, or just a birthday gift. But I just found out that Wowio, remember Wowio? There's a place where you can download PDFs pretty much for free. They do charge for some stuff, but a lot of the stuff is for free of comic books and now a lot of regular books as well. You can send people gifts of books from Wowio and a lot of times it's just free. And what it does is it personalizes the ebook for them. So they get a PDF that says, you know, happy Christmas or happy solstice or Festivus or whatever on the front. And then it says who it's from. And it just seems like a really nice way to introduce somebody to the concept of reading online. Now I have to say, I am still not really that into reading stuff online because of the limitations of the readers. I think I talked about this once before. I still haven't found, for me anyway, the best PDF reader that there is. So there is a Kindle, and I haven't gotten a Kindle because they're expensive. I have an old, old, old rocket ebook reader that still works to handle plain text and HTML, and I still use it from time to time, but the battery doesn't last very long, and it's kind of clunky, and it's black and white. It's not that great. I have the the computer that I record all the podcasts on is a 12-inch PowerBook, and the screen is just really not big enough for me to do it. At work, I have a much bigger screen, but I can't spend all my time at work reading comic books as much as I'd like to. There are other PDF readers out there, and I'm waiting for the ones that are, you know, um, pieces of very thick paper that just have the images appear on it and then change depending on what page you want to go on. Basically, electronic paper, which is coming. They're just not out yet, or if they are, I think they're prohibitively expensive. So I think that the reader aspect of this really needs to be perfected before people are going to buy into this in a big way. Unless you're one of those lucky people who has a laptop with a giant screen or you happen to spend a lot of time sitting in front of a monitor that you can actually read from without doing it on the sly when you're at work. Having said all that, I still think Wowio is amazing. And in fact, on their ad page for sending ebooks as gifts and greeting cards, here are the titles that they have. They have Jack London, Call of the Wild. They have um, The Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams. And they also have The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. And they also have something called uh, Hero by Night by G.J. Kaufman, which is an indie comic book. So you can get all of these classic things. Oh, they even have Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. 
So classic things, new things, independent things, all available on PDF. There really is no excuse for you not to be reading. Speaking of reading, um, I wanted to say that I love my iPhone and there's a new application for it called uh, uh, iPro Recorder, I think it is. I don't have my iPhone in front of me right now. But anyway, you can now record on your iPhone, which is completely awesome. And I'm going to be trying to do a podcast on that soon. There's also another thing on it called Instapaper, which is a service that allows you to save pages when you're browsing online and then it automatically um, syncs it with your iPhone and then you can read text-only stuff on your iPhone. And it's been great for me to read blogs and other things. Still no real easy way to read PDFs on your iPhone, so I'm hoping that that is the next problem that they solve. I'm not sure how good that's going to be, but it would be a step up. I would really love it if Apple just stepped in and made the world's best PDF reader that maybe did a few other things as well, you know, a a media viewer or something like that. That's about the size of a regular comic book, or maybe it's eight and a half by 11. But if Apple did that, it would be the coolest damn thing that ever existed. So that's what I would like to see. So I'm going to put that on my wish list for next year. And maybe somebody who knows Steve Jobs can go and talk to him about it and say, hey, Steve Jobs, this is what the world is waiting for because nobody else has really done it right. And if Apple did it and did it right, it would be the most awesome thing ever. Let's see. Uh, I have two really, really good books that I want to talk about for this podcast. And I think I will take a very short break and come back and just talk about them sequentially, but I really want to get into them a little bit because I feel like I haven't done that much in-depth stuff. So this is going to be it. Hang on.
So, the first book on my list is something that I've had for a while, and I read it when I first got it, and I liked it, and then I put it aside, and I just reread it again recently. And upon rereading it, I loved it. So I liked it the first time, loved it the second time. It's called Atomic Robo, and it's published by Red 5 Comics, Volume 1, Atomic Robo, and the Fightin' Scientists of Tesladyne. It is a collection of a bunch of comics into one trade paperback. I think the next trade is coming out early in 2009. So it's written by Brian Clevenger, and the art and the cover are by Scott Wegner. Colors by Rhonda Pattison, and the letters by Jeff Powell. So completely indie, and this book is just so cool. Atomic Robo is a robot. Believe it or not, he's a robot. And he is a humanoid-shaped robot, except that he doesn't really have any facial features. He has two big blue glowing eyes. And he is very much in the tradition of the Spider-Man-esque wisecracking superhero. So even when he's on these extremely dangerous missions, he's still out there being casual, cracking wise, and kicking ass at the same time. So in this first issue, we get a whole bunch of different stories that introduce him as a character, tell us a little bit about his history and where he came from. Um, I can read you a little bit. He's being interviewed in present day by a reporter who says, uh, You've led an illustrious career created by Nikola Tesla in 1923, surrounded by an adoring public and brought up by the greatest minds of the century. You've dedicated your life to forwarding scientific and social progress. You've been to the moon, visited Mars, mapped hollow earth, fought in three wars, defended the people of the world from all manner of catastrophes for 80, year, 80 years. So tell us, what was the hardest part? And he gives a little interview. Of course, he has a nemesis, and his nemesis is an evil guy named Helsingard. Um, the name is obviously a tip of the hat to Dracula Van Helsing, who was the um, vampire killer of that particular book. And Helsingard is a, I guess he starts off by being kind of a crazy Nazi guy. And in the very first story where we're introduced to all this, which takes place in 1938, right at the beginning of World War II, Atomic Robo is sent in to destroy this weapon that Helsingard has created. Helsingard, um, in the end, manages to transform himself basically into a brain in a jar atop a giant robot. Uh, not a head in a jar, a brain in a jar. And he is just evil through and through. And for the rest of the stories in this book, wherever Atomic Robo is fighting evil, it looks like Helsingard is there in one form or another. Um, in his brain-in-a-jar form. In the present day, he gets a nice... Uh, Atomic Robo gets a great team to work with, which is sort of very well-balanced. Um, there's a woman in there. There's, you know, guys who don't just look like they're white guys, and they all seem very capable. The art is really cool. It's very... Um, it's color, first of all, and it's sort of uh, angular, very, very angularly drawn. I would say... Um, a less friendly version of Bruce Tim. It's just um, more serious, and the colors in this are really, really beautiful. There's lots of beautiful shading, and um, they're very careful not to use too much blue, so you really see Atomic Robo's eyes standing out. There are lots of cameos in here by famous scientists. So Stephen Hawking is in it, and he ends up being the butt of a joke when Atomic Robo goes to Mars, which I don't want to give away. Um, Carl Sagan is in here, too. Other scientists get mentioned. Obviously, he's created by uh, Nikola Tesla, a very famous scientist. And each story is 
action-packed. There's lots of fighting. There's lots of punching. There's lots of explosions. There's lots of robots fighting robots. But there's still a lot of funny stuff. And then underlying it all, which I think is the key to this, is the um, the whole conceit, which is that Atomic Robo is a robot. And he isn't human, but he acts like a human and he talks like a human. And he says at one point when somebody hits him, hey, it's not like that didn't hurt. And you think, well, how could it really hurt him? He's a robot. How could that work? And even though he's a robot, we see that he has sadness and regrets over time when people that he was friends with are now dead because they're not robots and they don't live forever. And he sort of has this, uh, interesting perspective on living so long and being a robot and knowing that he's not going to die like a regular human being, but he probably will cease functioning at some point. The last story that's in here, even though it seems that he has conquered uh, Helsingard and his zombie mummies who were helping him out, um, definitely lets you know that there's going to be more of this happening eventually. And we'll find out what Helsingard's plot is, I suppose, um, aside from wanting to rule the world, which is what the bad guys always want to do. In the back of this book are some shorter Atomic Robo stories that are written by Brian Clavenger, but the art is by different people. So the first one, the art is by um, Joshua Ross. Uh, The second one, the art is by Zach Finfrock. And these styles are all very, very different from uh, the way that it's normally drawn in the comic book. The next one is a story and art by Christian Ward, and that's done in a real um, Von Baudet type of style, very trippy and psychedelic. And then the last one here called The Survivor is by Nick Klein. And I love that it doesn't take itself so seriously. It really does acknowledge all of the things that have come before in comic books and in comic books that have robots or robotic type beings in them. And it says, here's everything that went before and we're going to just do it a little bit better and a little bit differently. So I just, I like it. And I like the character of Atomic Robo. For a non-human character, he has an awful lot of personality. And that's what really keeps this going. I'll give you a little sample of uh, the dialogue here when he comes parachuting in. Oh, the other thing about him is that he wears clothes. So that's how you can sort of tell what the time is supposed to be. So in the very first story, which is called The Will to Power, that takes place in 1938, he's wearing kind of a typical American soldier outfit from that point, you know, like a short sleeve khaki shirt and uh, the khaki pants. He doesn't wear a helmet or anything, but he clearly is dressed to look like another guy in the army. So uh, he he parachutes into this base where Helsingard and his evil Nazi friends are, which is located in the uh, Yarlung Tsangpao Canyon in the Himalayas. And he comes in, and the guys are all surprised to see him, and he starts reading his arrest warrant. It says, By the authority of the League of Nations, Baron Heinrich von Helsingard is hereby placed under arrest as an enemy of all mankind for the crimes of kidnapping, human experimentation upon unwilling subjects, and... Wow, geez, that's a lot of atrocities. Where did Helsingard find the time to sleep? I don't even know what this one means. And the Nazis pull back their guns. They load them. And he says, don't tell me I'm in the wrong mountain super base. So, like I said, wisecracking. Wisecracking the whole way, but with an awful lot of heart to him. So I can wholeheartedly recommend Atomic Robo, and I'm going to get the next one as soon as it comes out. Now, the guys who do Atomic Robo have a website. And they have a blog. Let me find it. 
And the cool thing about it is that it's really interesting. And I actually remember looking at the blog way back when I got this and thinking, hey, these guys are cool. So it's at atomic-robo.com. And it keeps you updated on what they're doing and when the next things are coming out. And then they just blog about other stuff as well. So here's a really cool thing. And I will put up a link to this specific post because I thought it was great. And it is called Some Simple Rules. And uh, I'll just read it a little bit. And it's, it's written by Brian. He says, most people who work in comics are comic fans. It only makes sense. You don't become an auto mechanic if you hate cars. And this is what's wrong with most comics. They're written and drawn by people who think that comics are doing just fine. If Atomic Robo has any kind of advantage, it's that its co-creators kind of hate comics. Me again. I think that that's absolutely great. Um, so he says, when we were brainstorming on what we wanted Atomic Robo to be, we came up with a list of rules. It was nothing formal, but things that would come up in conversation like, man, I hate it when comics do X. I know. Let's never do that. Agreed. So they put together this list of things that you'll never see in one of our comics. And I wanted to read some of these because I thought these were great rules. And I think it's the kind of thing that comic creators should absolutely do. If you're going to make a comic and you want it to be things that you love and not things that you hate, make sure you write down the list of things that you hate so that you won't do that stuff again. How simple could it be? And the things that they hate pretty much overlap with all the things that I hate too. So obviously these are guys after my own heart. The very first one says, no angst. He says, uh, Loading characters up with angst was a revolutionary move on the part of Marvel Comics back in the 60s. I haven't looked at a calendar today, but that was four decades ago. And I completely agree with that. Angst has a time and a place, but not in every comic, not in all the time. And characters certainly don't need to be motivated by angst. His number two rule, no cheesecake. This is nothing more than Scott and I having the audacity to treat women like human beings. I mean, come on, 99 times out of 100, there is no reason at all to frame a panel from the perspective of a girl's ass. Grow up already. I love that. Could it be stated any more simply or plainly? No, that is just a wonderful way of saying it. We don't want cheesecake. We're not going to put it in. And damn, there's no cheesecake in here. There are female characters in here, but they act like people. They don't act like women. They're not wearing skin tight clothes. They're not shoving their tits and their ass into the camera, so to speak. It's just great. I can't say enough about that. Next rule, no reboots. He says they're frustrating, unnecessary, and a jarring reminder that all fiction is a thinly veiled series of lies. I agree with that also. Reboots just kind of suck unless you do them in a very creative way. You know, I have to say for all that I really don't like the Ultimates in Marvel, I think the concept of the Ultimates is really good. It was a way of rebooting without actually rebooting. Just take the characters, put them in a different place and start over or as much as you can start over without breaking the characters and do it that way instead of trying to weave things into regular continuity when you can't have a continuity if you're actually rebooting things. I understand why they want to do it. Things get too complicated, but honestly, reboots, crazy making. Next rule, no filler. He says, this one's pretty simple. Why should we devote a month of our short lives to creating an issue if it isn't worth reading? And I completely agree with that too. You know, in the old days, back when I was reading comics as a young lass, they always had backup stories in the back of the comics, but a lot of times they were really good backup stories. They weren't just filler. Of course, a lot of times you did get it where they were completely out of material and you'd see them reprinting, you know, Superman stories from 
30 years before or um, Jack Kirby stories from eons ago because they just didn't have anything else to fill it up. But on the whole, I agree, filler sucks. It's nice when you can have what they call here in the Atomic Robo book, the B stories, that is, little stories that aren't a whole chapter, but that are illustrated by someone different, give you a, a chance to look at the character in a different way. I think that is really the way to do it without being a uh, filler. And then the last rule is no delays. This one's even simpler. Uh, the industry hasn't, whoops, excuse me. The industry's gotten so bad about delays that they have become the norm. No one is surprised anymore when a comic book is delayed. And when a comic has no delays, there's that unspoken yet or in a while tacked on at the end. So he's saying that they are never going to have delays. And I don't know if they've lived up to that. I certainly think they, they probably will. Um, but I just think those are simple rules and they're great. And if you're going to be a comics creator, that's the kind of thing that you need to put down and live by. And you know, if, if you're not going to live by those rules, if you're going to say to yourself something like, oh, I don't know, take an example. We're going to have a lot of angst in here. Be upfront about it. Don't deny it. And don't try to get around the fact that you have a lot of angst. If that's the kind of thing that you like, just say, this is the kind of thing that I like and I want to put it in my comic. Whatever the thing is you don't like, acknowledge it. And then don't put it in your goddamn comic. Don't say you're not going to and then put it in anyway. And this is actually the thing that pisses most people off about the comics company, especially with regard to the cheesecake, is that they're constantly saying, oh, we're not going to do it. We're not going to put it in there. We're not going to do gratuitous things. We're going to make our comics more friendly. But they never do. They might try it for a little while or they might make an effort for one issue, but they don't really. And that's the worst part is being a hypocrite. So if you're not going to do it, don't lie and say that you're going to do it or do it in a way that's designed to fail or, you know, appoint people to oversee this who clearly have no idea what the hell they're doing. Just don't. Don't be a hypocrite. That's the worst part about it. So I like the Atomic Robo guys. I love this book. I can't wait for the next one to come out. I heartily recommend that you go out there and buy it. Um, it's It kind of follows in the theme of a lot of the science-based stuff that I've been reviewing, reading and reviewing lately, because I really, really like those. Um, the five-fifths of science, stuff like that. I think those are really great. Notice how Nikola Tesla seems to feature in a lot of these. He's definitely kind of the go-to guy for this sort of stuff, which I think is cool that you can have a character like that. Him and Thomas Edison are like the... Uh, the guys who feature heavily in these science-based things. Science-based comic books are really cool, and sometimes you even learn stuff when you read them. So let me put that aside and move on to the next book I want to review, which is completely and totally different in every single way.
The next book that I've got here is called Fun Home, and it's by Alison Bechtel. And this was a book that I got during the summer, late, of course, because as everybody knows, it's been winning awards and doing really well, and everybody knows about it but me, right? So I finally got it, and I read it, and I think I've read this book probably seven or eight times by now. It's that good, and I find something new in it every time I read it. So first, let me say, it's fantastic, and then if you haven't read it, you should go out and buy it right away and read it. The thing that that I, I really realized after reading it, probably around the fifth or sixth time, was that this story could not have been told half as effectively either in pictures alone or in words alone. This is pretty much why the graphic novel needs to exist, is to convey the juxtaposition of the words and the images and the freedom for the author to jump back and forth to show something in the words that is completely different from what's happening in the picture, but have you construct meaning out of it. I'm amazed at how good this is and how well-crafted it is. You know, for people who, I don't know, if you're listening to this show, you don't think that this is true, but so many people think, you know, comic books, graphic novels, they're crap. They're just for kids. They're easy. Anybody can draw those pictures and put words to them. Well, no, they can't. And there aren't many people around who could craft something this compelling, this interesting, and this multi-layered as Alison Bechdel could do with this book. It is just amazing how much she manages to build into this, how much is built into every page, into every panel, how one thing leads to another, her incredibly careful word choice throughout. There is not one wasted word in here, and there's not one wasted line either. Every illustration shows something or takes you further along in the story or lets you see the characters in some way that you maybe hadn't before. There are just so many nuances to it. And the the cool thing about this book is that every time I read it, I get a different impression of the main character. So this is a book by Alison Bechdel. It's an autobiograph- autobiographical book about growing up and about specifically her dad, Bruce. And everything in here is true in as much as the way we remember things are true. She is, as she says, an obsessive diarist. So she's got her diaries that go back to when she was a child and pictures. And she's obviously talked to some family members, her mother specifically, to try to confirm things that she remembers happening. But you can never really be sure about the way you remember things. I think that is something that we're kind of coming to terms with now when everything is recorded is that we think that our memories are so good when we give an eyewitness report or we remember something that happened in our childhood and then we, it turns out it happened in a completely different way or it never happened at all or it happened to someone else. So that is kind of overlaid over the top of it that this, and, and she acknowledges this very specifically that this is her memory of what it was like growing up with him as the dad and the house that they lived in. And it's all colored through her perspe- her perspective and that the perspective of someone else was probably completely different. And that's one of the things I loved about this is at the end, I was really wanting to, to know more about this story from the perspective of other people like her mother or her brothers 
she's got brothers who don't appear that often in this I mean they're in the story but they don't speak very much it's mostly her and her dad <coughs> and her mom as the the featured players in this story but it, it it is an amazing story in that you just never know what you're gonna get when you start looking at people's families every family is different and everybody thinks that their family is like the normal family even though their family might be the weirdest family and that's part of what she brings to the surface in growing up is figuring out that her family isn't a normal family you know nobody's family is really normal but what she grew up with was definitely not what most people would consider a normal family so it I felt, I have to say personally now, stepping back from the reviewer, I felt a lot of connection to this book too, because she's pretty much the same age as I am. And she grew up in Pennsylvania. I grew up in New Jersey. So there's a lot of parallels between her early life and my young life. I had two brothers. She's got brothers. You know, I had a mom and a dad and, um, you know, parents who had kind of regular jobs, not a lot of similarities beyond that, but there were some things about it and her cultural references for growing up are very much the same time period as mine. Even the choice of clothing that she draws on herself as a young girl of, you know, six, nine, 10, 11 were very much the same kinds of clothes that I wore when I was growing up too. Cause that's what girls wore at that point when you were growing up. So all of that had a very personal connection for me. So just to get that out of the way, um, I'm going to give away the lots of spoilers for the book. So if you haven't read the book and you don't want to know much more about it, then you probably shouldn't listen to the rest of it. But the spoilers are integral to understanding what goes on into her story. So she begins kind of at the end when she's talking about her dad by saying that she's remembering him. She's remembering what it was like growing up with him as a dad right now because he's dead. And the manner of his death is still an open question, whether he killed himself or whether it was an accident. He got run over by a truck. And there are lots of reasons to argue, she says, on both sides of that, whether he did kill himself or whether it was really an accident. And we don't know. That's one of the things we'll probably never find out because it, he didn't leave a suicide note. He might have left some clues that he was thinking about doing it, but there's nothing to point one way or the other. And the whole question of whether he killed himself or not is really integral to the character of her father as we start to, to see him right from the beginning of the book, that his whole life is built on artifice. And this is exemplified pretty much in everything that he does, that he has... he is a master of house restoration. So they live in this old house that was beautiful at one time and it becomes kind of his purpose in life to restore the house to the glory that it was before. And he goes through it um, just from bottom to top, restoring every single part of it. So I'll read a little bit because I love her language. As I said, there is not one word out of place in her. Her sentence structure is completely conscious and, and beautifully balanced. So she says, his greatest achievement arguably was his monomaniacal restoration of our own house. So that is a piece of narration that comes from a sequence where she's playing with her dad on the floor. They're kind of doing a little wrestling airplane flying thing. He's interested in playing with her for a couple of minutes. And then as soon as he notices the floor, he says, this rug is filthy. Go get the vacuum cleaner. 
And then in the next panel, he says, and then get me my tack hammer. That strip of molding is loose. And she's drawn herself as a young, a very young girl, probably six or seven years old, wanting to play with him some more, but he won't play with her. And now she has to go off to fetch him some tools to work on the house again. And the look on her little girl's face is just kind of resigned, kind of angry, but knowing that you can't protest that there's no point in saying that you didn't want to do this as she walks out of the frame. In the next panel, the narration says, When other children called our house a mansion, I would demur. My family, I resented the implication that my family was rich or unusual in any way. And below that is a panel of the house, which looks pretty nice. And she says to her friend, It's just a house. In the next panel, the narration says, In fact, we were unusual, though I wouldn't appreciate exactly how unusual until much later, but we were not rich. And off panel, a voice calls Allison. She says, What? Send Tammy home. You have work to do. It's clearly her dad's voice. And in the bottom panel of that page, which takes up the whole page, he's standing in a room that's kind of Victorian fussy. He's on a ladder and he's taking down some curtains and says, wash these old curtains so we can put up the hand embroidered lace ones I found in Mrs. Strump's attic. The narration says, the gilt cornices, the marble fireplace, the crystal chandeliers, the shelves of calf-bound books, these were not so much bought as produced from thin air by my father's remarkable leisure demand. And in the next couple of panels, we get some examples of how good he is at decorating and remaking things and just redoing the whole house into his vision of what it should be. There's a wonderful panel at the bottom of page seven where it's a drawing of her father. He's carrying um, a big piece of wood over his shoulder. It looks like a, a post for the corner of the porch. And he's kind of bent over. And he's in what we come to see is the work clothes that he's in most of the time during the summer, which is a pair of cutoff shorts and loafers and no shirt. And the house is in the background. He's greatly magnified, so it's not the same scale. And the house is in silhouette. And he looks like a character from Greek mythology. He looks like Sisyphus, in fact, pushing the boulder up the hill, sort of resigned to it, but doing it ceaselessly. And the narration says, it was his passion, and I mean passion in every sense of the word, libidinal, manic, and martyred. And the way that she's drawn him really just captures those three words. It's a wonderful juxtaposition of them. There's that word juxtaposition. I'll stop saying that now. She gives some examples of where the house came from, what its history was, and then slowly we begin to see that although her dad was an amazing guy when it came to restoring the house, as a dad, he wasn't that great because he was impatient with the kids and yells at them and hits them, not abusively hitting them, but just doesn't have any patience for kids. He, he just isn't that interested in them and doesn't really care about the kid things that they do. And you start to see that the kids are all really afraid of him when he gets mad. Um, and she says, sometimes when things were going well, I think my father actually enjoyed having a family or at least the air of authenticity we lent to his exhibit, a sort of still life with children. And this narration is on a panel of the kids all sitting around an enormous, beautifully decorated Christmas tree. And the father is in the foreground, but he's shadowed so you don't see him. And he's sort of holding a little glass of sherry and observing the scene, much like she says, he's observing this still life with children. So it goes through a lot of what it was like to live in this weird old house that's over-decorated under her father's 
rules about the way things should look and the way she should dress. And we finally come on page 17 to the crux of the matter, the crux point. The narration reads, He used his skillful artifice to not, not to make things, but to make things appear to be what they were not, that is to say, impeccable. He appeared to be an ideal husband and father, for example. And then the next line is drawn over a picture of the family in a Catholic church, all sitting there, the kids looking really bored, the dad looking very uncomfortable and slightly suspicious, and the mom just kind of staring straight ahead of her. And the narration says, But would an ideal husband and father have sex with teenage boys? And that's where the secret comes out. So this is the plot of the whole rest of the book, is how she finds out that her father um, was having sex with boys and she's not sure whether he was gay or bisexual or whatever, but this was clearly something that was the big family secret that no one was supposed to know about it. And it's hinted that there were other things going on with her dad as well. Like at one point, her mother says that he was a shoplifter and did other things compulsively. So maybe there was some obsessive compulsive disorder along with that. And at the same time, it's the story of her realizing that she's a lesbian. So the two stories are going along parallel paths. And of course, as always happens, she finds out about her dad pretty much at the same time that she's coming out to her family. And as she says, her father once again took her away from being the center of attention and had all the attention on himself. And it wasn't that he meant for it to happen that way, but that was the way it was. So she was shunted aside once again. So throughout the whole book, we see her struggles growing up with coming to terms with who she is and rejecting what her dad wanted her to be, which was a very feminine girly girl and her growing dislike of him as not being a real man because he liked interior decorating and loved gardening and loved flowers and things like that. And there's a lot of places where those two lines cross over, especially as she's growing up when she and her dad find her, themselves looking at the same issue of GQ magazine, she admiring um, the the manly men that are in it and the, the beautiful men's clothes. And of course, although he doesn't say it, her dad admiring the beautiful men who are in it. So she's very much drawn to the, the masculine aspects while he is just himself drawn to the men who are in it. And throughout this whole story, we look at how their family functions or doesn't function and what the history of her mom and dad were, how they got together and um, how they got married, although it's never really explained why they decided to have children, and maybe it's just a that's what everybody was doing at the time was having kids. Um, clearly, her mother, you know, takes care of the kids, is an excellent mom, a perfectionist herself, and manages to get um, a degree in English literature while she's raising kids and taking care of this ridiculous old house and putting up with her dad being a crazy person. And she is trying to figure out, Allison that is, is just trying to figure out what her place is in this world. A lot of it is tied to the area in, in not rural, rural Pennsylvania, but far enough so that it wasn't a city and all of her relatives live really close by. And she makes it pretty clear that there really was just one generation away from um, kind of almost Appalachian, not quite hillbillies, but definitely farming type people. And that it's really just her parents' generation who are a little more educated and a little more sophisticated. The title of the book comes from the fact that 
her family owns a funeral home and that's the short form is the fun home and it was her grandfather's funeral home and then it got passed down to her dad and that's what he does on the side um, in addition to his job as an English teacher so there's also this addition of the strange creepy factor that they had a funeral home and she got to see dead bodies and had to deal with death in a very real way but it doesn't it's a it's a really interesting lead up to the fact that her dad gets killed and then she has to go back for the funeral in the family funeral home and see him laid out in a coffin just the way she's seen countless other bodies laid out in coffins by her dad and it, it just makes her feel very very weird and detached from it all at the same time so that's another thread that runs through it as well um, another big issue that comes through is when she goes off to college was when she really figures out that she's a lesbian and starts to read a lot of James Joyce and in fact has to read Ulysses as part of an independent study project so her father has always been a very well-read individual especially loving F. Scott Fitzgerald and loving James Joyce and when he realizes that she's reading Ulysses tries to take some of the glory again away from her and intrude on her learning and she really resents that but she sees a lot of parallels in the story of Ulysses about fathers and their children in the relationship that she has with her dad as well and that is one of the ways that they do end up communicating is through literature that they both read the same books and they're able to talk at least on that level about some things and find some connection and going through it at different stages in the history she sees her the way she is like her father in many ways and as much as she doesn't like that in some ways, it's a connection, at least a connection that she has with him, because it's really clear from her childhood that there was no connection between her and her dad until she got a little bit older. So there was a lot that she missed out on that finally got to catch up on a little bit when she was an adult. Um, I should say, I, I was just realizing this, you know, back when I was talking to Steve McIsaac about his his work in Sticky um, and in some of the other things that he'd drawn, I mentioned that his work seemed to me to be in black and white when in fact it wasn't in black and white it was in black and sort of sepia washes but it always seemed to me to not be in color this book is the same way it's black with blue washes and they're very very beautifully done to convey depth and setting and mood and it, it comes across as a, a warmer warmer but cooler because it's a blue wash and not an actual sepia tone wash which would give it a much warmer feeling but the line work is completely exquisite and detailed. There are whole pages where she goes through reproducing what her diary was like at the time and showing how her own bits of obsessive compulsiveness were breaking through and how she would write over words as sort of magic to protect her from bad things. And that it stopped. She managed to, to stop herself in time before it got really out of hand. But that was a taste for her of what it was like to have something controlling you from the inside that you really couldn't get a handle on. The fact that she saved all of these diaries and things over the years is amazing. And of course, she wouldn't have been able to write this book without it, or it would have been a very different book if she hadn't had all the primary documentation. But it's kind of neat to see how she can bring that in and show what it was really like. And looking at her diary from when she was... 12 and 13 years old is really funny because of course I had a diary then too and it's very much the same sort of thing it's like I got home from school and I did this with my brothers and then we did that and things that were really really important barely rate a mention in the diary if they were kind of family related or 
really important. I, and when she talks about things that go on with her dad, including an incident where he gets arrested, um, presumably for giving beer to an underage kid, but really for soliciting a kid to have sex in a car, which is never mentioned. No one ever, ever says what it is. It's just not that big a deal because nobody was talking about it and therefore it didn't rate much of an entry in there. Um, there are other things that happen that, that rate mentions in her diary as well, things that were going on for her as she was growing up, like starting to develop breasts and when she got her first period and um, realizing that there was, masturbation was a thing that you could do and, and it felt good and all that. A lot of self-discovery that went on that are, you know, much like Judy Bloom books where you get to read this stuff. And it's really cool to see it from her point of view in this weird dysfunctional family as well. I could go, I could basically read this whole book to you guys, but I think you should definitely, if you haven't read it yet, go out and get it because you'll want to read it and you're going to want to read it more than one time. Every time I go through it, I find something new and different to focus on that I didn't see before, whether it's a drawing that I missed the first time around or some wording that I didn't quite catch or a theme that started at the beginning and got taken up again at the end. Um, again, I, I can't even tell you about all the different threads that get put together as I'm flipping through it I'm realizing one of the other important things is that her parents met while they were in a play together in college and performing in the local theater group is the one of the passions that her mother has and it again gets back to that theme of everything being artifice and being um, her father wanting their lives as a family to be more perfect than they really were and it all being like a stage play to him and there's her mother actually performing in stage plays and the play that gets focused on here in this particular chapter of course is Oscar Wilde so another connection it's the importance of being earnest which is a play that's all about appearances and things not being what they seem and confounding expectations of the way people actually behave and, and who they are and who they turn out to be in the end when there's mistaken identity and mysteries that need to be solved. So it's all, it's all intertwined in the way that things are in real life. There are some really interesting scenes of um, some visits that they take to New York in the uh, late 70s and early 80s and how different that was for her. And it was a place where she could finally see gay people close up and understand that there was a different world outside of where she was. Um, and I have to say that there's one really disturbing scene in here, which jarred me quite a lot the first time I read it. And it still is. It's not that it's out of place. It's just that it's, it's a reminder that the world is a real place. Okay, what the hell am I talking about? So the family goes to New York. It's um, when the, I think it's the time that they go when the tall ships were there. So, oh, sorry, Bicentennial, so 1976. And she's there with her dad. They're visiting some friends. And she was 15 and she was finally seeing, as I said, gay subculture for a time. And uh, there was a day when her littlest brother, who um, was, I guess, 11, decided to go for a walk. They're, they're staying down on Christopher Street, so he wanted to go down to look at the boats by himself, and he took off, and um, her dad is out doing, uh, no, he's in the shower, sorry, and when he comes out, he says, where's your brother? Oh, he went out a little while ago, and he totally freaks out about that, and his dad has to go find his little brother before something happens. So, 
as a person, you would think, oh, well, it's not safe to be walking around New York. And then there's another level of realization, which is, well, of course it's not safe for his, for her brother, who's, you know, a little 11 year old blonde kid wearing a sailor suit to go out because there are pedophiles who would prey on him. And seeing that was just, you know, for me, when, when I think of, you know, the gay community and, and how the gay people that I've met in my life are just so much gay guys, I should say, are just so much nicer than straight guys because <laughs> they don't have a lot of that horrible sexism towards women just ingrained in them. And, you know, you have to accept the fact that within the gay community, there are still going to be guys who prey on younger people. In this case, instead of um, older men who are focusing on young girls, it's older men who are focusing on young boys. And it's just as bad. There's no excuse for it. Just because they're gay, they don't get off easy. Like somehow this is acceptable. And for that to come within, toward the end of this long story about accepting, she's accepting her own sexuality and that her father still thinks of his true sexuality as being something bad. You have to accept that there is this bad thing that can happen even within that, that just, just because you're gay, it doesn't mean that everything is great and happy and good now. The one thing that's not in here along those same lines is a lot of, you don't see a lot of discrimination. Um, not overt anyway. Of course, her dad couldn't talk about being gay. And when she comes out, Allison to her friends, they're all just because it's college and they're like, cool. <laughs> there's no big deal. There's no prejudice. There's no gay bashing. There's no hatred. And so you don't see a lot of that bad side. I hope that that was her experience. I think it is the experience more often these days than was before. Although, of course, the amount of prejudice that there is in the world still runs rampant. We're in California and, you know, look at Proposition 8. So it's still out there, but not maybe as much as before. I'm not sure. Um, I can't really speak to that. But anyway, I just wanted to mention that one scene because it's very powerful and I'm glad that she put it in here and didn't pretend that that kind of stuff doesn't happen because it's something that you need to accept. And of course she talks about, um, the AIDS crisis in the early 80s as well and speculates on the fact that if her dad hadn't been hit by a truck killed himself by jumping in front of a truck he might have died of AIDS anyway because um, it he certainly had his share of casual encounters even on these trips to New York and otherwise as inferred by her mother although we don't find out a lot about that so gosh I've been talking about this book for a long time and I could probably keep talking about it because it's just fascinating and it's a beautiful thing to look at. Um, the drawings are amazing and they work completely with the narration that goes along with it. Every panel says something. So you can see why this won the National Book Critics Circle Award in the memoir. It won a whole bunch of other things too and I'm really, really glad about it. So I hope that this is a book that gets a huge wide audience and continues to be one of those graphic novels where people say, oh, if you want to read a really good graphic novel that shows you why graphic novels are so good, you know, get Watchmen, but get Fun Home because it is just that good. Go get it. Really, really, really good. So I think that's about it for this time around. I am just noticing that um, WonderCon is coming up once again in the new year. It's February 27th to March 1st in... San Francisco, and I will probably be there, although I don't know if they're going to do a podcasting, whatever it is. Um, I, as I said last time, I'm getting a little tired of the, like, let's sit up on here and talk to people about podcasting, because honestly, what could be more boring than that? Talking about what it's like to do a podcast? God. 
So maybe there'll be something else this year that we can organize. I would certainly like to do interviews like I did last year because I thought that was really fun to talk to people right there on the floor. So pretty sure that's going to happen for me. And um, just a side note that I have that other podcast, you know, the one about Star Trek. And as part of that podcast, we're going to be doing a live show in San Francisco in January, I think at some point. So um, you can come and see me do that. And it's going to be like our podcast, but live and with some comedy bits that we actually script. And then additionally, we, my co-host and I, JK, are hosting a women's creative festival thing called Women on the Way. And it's January 17th in San Francisco. And there's a bunch of information posted over at the Look at His Butt blog, which is lookathisbutt.blogspot.com. And I'll probably cross post some of that to the I Read Comics blog as well. So it's us performing a little bit of our material and basically being hosts for the whole evening. And there's going to be a lot of great women performers there. So if you're in San Francisco and you're up for that kind of thing, you might enjoy it. So check out the information and come by. So I will just say in closing, I hope everybody has a wonderful, happy new year. This podcast will absolutely be continuing through 2009, trying to get out on a more regular schedule, but I'll be here. I'm not going anywhere. Happy new year.